Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I am Kaylee Fretz, and we have a very special edition of the podcast for you this week. Today's podcast is brought to you by Canyon Bicycles and, well, their new bicycle. And we're going to be talking about that throughout the day today. You've probably heard a couple of these on the Cycling Tips podcast before. We've done them with various other brands. Uh, just to sort of lay out the ground rules here. Yes, this is a partnership with Canyon, this particular episode. However, James and I have, well, ethical standards, <laughs> journalistic standards, and we have not been asked to ask any particular questions. We have uh, not been told we can't ask any questions, and that's sort of the ground rules that we have coming into these things. And so this is very much an editorial product, but we do thank Canyon for coming on board with it. So without further ado, James, what are we talking about today? Well, today Canyon is releasing the new version of their Aeroad, their flagship aero road racing bike. Um, it's yeah, well, it's well. We've seen spy photos of it before. I mean, I think probably the best known one was sort of a clearly strategic placement in a Zwift ad quite a long time ago. That like many, a year ago, like a year ago. <laughs> that that you know, some people were like, "Oh my God, Canyon accidentally put that bike in a Zwift ad." Like, mm, I don't think that was a mistake. <laughs> anyway, we now have official details on this thing. I've been riding this bike, and now we have a whole bunch of Canyon staff on with this podcast to give us all the details about it, and I think we should just jump right in. Let's start with some quick introductions. Uh, we do need to put you know voices to names here. So our, our Canyon guests, can you guys introduce yourselves? Sure. My name is Lucas. Um, I'm working for Canyon now around six years. I'm in the roadback bike department and basically focusing on performance bikes. And my recent project was the Aeroad. That's why I'm here today. Yeah, and I'm Michael Automite. I'm the team manager um, of the engineering in the road bike department, working for Kenya now since yeah 10 years, a bit even longer. And uh, I took specialty care for the aerodynamics of the new Aeroad. So, James, where do we want to start today? What's our first question for these two guys? Well, I think first and foremost, I mean, the Aeroad is, you know, it's not meant to be an all-rounder. It's not like an aero endurance bike um, or an all-road bike, certainly. I mean, its primary reason is to go fast. Um, and the old one was already shown to be very fast in independent testing, not just in-house canyon testing. So I think the first, th the first thing that we should find out is, I mean, what sort of aero improvements are we actually talking about? I mean, how, how much faster is this thing? Yeah, good question. I mean, um, we are talking about 4.4 uh, watts measured at 45 kph. Um, so maybe this uh, doesn't seem too much, but uh, the old aero was also uh, quite a fast bike, right? And um, so, yeah. It took us uh, a while and a lot of uh, CFD ones and also wind tunnel ones to get there. And yeah, finally we uh, came out with 4.4 uh, watts. I mean, and I guess one thing that's worth noting, I mean, a lot of the testing that we see, a lot of the claims that we see, I mean, I think they typically done it, like, at, I think they typically quoted at 50K an hour. Um, but to see 45K an hour, to me at least, is a little, little bit more encouraging because that certainly seems like a, a, a figure that more kind of everyday enthusiasts are likely to be able to hit. I mean, I know I can hit that um, actually pretty comfortably on this bike on flat road, which is quite encouraging. Um, so, but, you know, but for a racer, I mean, Kaylee, you certainly were much more of a road racer than I ever was, but I mean, 
4.4 watts at race pace. I mean, I can think of a lot of people who would go to a lot of extents to get 4.4 watts at race pace. Oh, for sure. And that, and in fact, that if that's only 4.4 watts over the previous aeroad, correct? And so you're talking about over a another aero bike, the gap I would imagine, and we've heard this from from lots of different brands, right? The, the gap I would imagine from you know, an ultimate CF or something like that, 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 that would be much larger, right? That would be what, 10, 15, something in that range. Do you guys have that number as well? Um, yes, um, of course. I mean, we are talking about if the difference to the ultimate is probably around, uh, 17 Watts, I think. Mm. Yeah. At 45 kilometers an hour. Yeah. Yes. This is always the reference speed, right? In Europe, um, I guess almost everyone is measuring at 45 kph. Yeah. To get comparable results, right? Right. I I'm always a little bit astounded then that we don't see more pros on the aero bikes. <laughs> because if you, if, if I'm a pro and you tell me I can get 17 watts, it, that seems like a really easy decision. I, we're going in a bit of a tangent here, but uh, do you guys ever deal with with the pro teams and trying to convince them to get on the on the faster bike? Like, do you ever have to deal with that? Um, yes, um, of course. I mean, um, I mean, Kelly, you will know that uh, the the pro sport business is uh, quite a traditional business as well, right? So um, when we remember the whole disc brake discussion, for example. Uh, so sometimes it's not so easy to convince somebody of a new technique or technology. And, um, but I think in the future, we will see definitely more pro riders on the new aeroad. And for example, if you take Alejandro Valverde, he was riding the new aeroad uh, during all stages of the Tour de France, right? And he was not mm. even, he had the opportunity to uh, shift the bike and to take, for example, the ultimate CFR. Um, he didn't do that and he uh, kept riding on the new aero, right? Yeah. So, mm. um, James, you also said uh, the, the new aero, um, is this an all-rounder or not? And from my point of view, it's a really complete race bike, right? If um, Alejandro Valverde can ride the bike during all stages of the Tour de France, then I think the bike is quite complete and quite uh, all round as well. Uh, I, I wish everyone could see the, the look of strained frustration that was on Michael's face when Kaylee first asked that question, because you could you could just tell, you could just feel it through the computer that he was like, why aren't all of our sponsored riders racing this thing? I don't understand. I have the numbers right in front of me. It's a complete no brainer. It should be, but it's not. Yeah, for some riders, I think um, aerodynamics is like sophisticated or basically it's not something really visible for them, right? So it's hard to understand riders actually what we do here and what we try to optimize. But as soon as they feel it somehow, I think they get convinced uh, yeah, in a better way than just showing hmm. simple numbers. Uh, I was going to say, do you happen to know whether Valverde's bike was at 6.8 kilograms throughout the Tour de France? So Valverde basically um, switched wheel sets between the stages. And he was, I think for the, the mountain setup was around 7.0 kilograms. But you need to consider, of course, this is, you know, they need to stick to certain um, sponsor um, group sets and whatever. So uh, like the, the weight is pretty much limited there. But I think for, for yeah, not a professional rider, for amateur rider, I think if they really try to bring the weight down, I think they can hit 6.8 kilograms very easy, I would say. So one of the things that's in your media kit, I guess in the tech paper, um, you, you described this thing that you've, you've called a sailing effect. What exactly are we talking about here? 
Yeah, good question. I mean, sailing effect, this is actually um, the ability of the bike to reduce its drag um, in crosswind conditions, right? So uh, when the yaw angle is increasing, um, you can see that the drag is decreasing. And uh, at a certain yaw angle of about like, let's say, 16 or 18 degree, uh, you can see that the, uh, the drag uh, is reaching um, the minimum and after that it's uh, increasing again and this uh, this phenomenon is um, yeah is quite um, particular for a aero road bike right not every bike can reduce its drag when uh, when it's riding in crosswind conditions i mean i feel like this is a fairly recent phenomenon that we've been talking about in in aero bike development in general i mean i remember uh, I think it was Zip. Uh, I can't remember exactly how many years ago, but they had their their sub nine. I think uh, their disc, their mm -hmm. rear disc wheel yeah. that they had claimed that that's you know at certain in certain conditions would actually produce lift yes. essentially. Yes. Um, yeah, that's the case. I mean, um, also um, not only disc wheels. Yeah, if you take a, a sixty millimeter or eighty millimeter deep rim uh, today, um, already these wheels can produce thrust. But only at high yaw angles. Let's say um, maybe 16 degree uh, and uh, higher. Yeah, they produce thrust. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, it's quite funny. So, so you're saying that in theory, if you could get, if you took a really good tech photographer, and we are able to, you know, magically make these bikes stand up by themselves with no with no visible props or anything, it's magic. Yeah. If you were to take take this aeroid and do that, <laughs> and then make it so that it doesn't fall over. And hit it with a 16 degree yaw angle crosswind. You're saying that this bike would actually propel itself forward. Yeah, yeah, that's the case. But own not the bike. Yeah, okay. This is maybe uh, important to mention. This only holds true for the wheel. Okay, the whole bike. You can see, for example, um, the bike at zero degree uh, of yaw angle. It uh, has got and drag, let's say, around 205 uh, watts or something like that. And at 16 degree of your angle, it has uh, 35 uh, watts less uh, drag. Okay, so but um, of course there is still some drag. Um, the um, the bike itself is never producing thrust. So the thrust which is produced here uh, only results in a um, reduction of the drag, but not in a forward force. Yeah, that, ah, that's important that. to okay. mention. But if you take the, a front wheel, a very good front wheel, and you measure it, isolate it in the wind tunnel, then it's producing thrust. Okay, well, that, that that's a satisfying explanation because I think if you were to say, yes, the bike would propel itself no. forward, then I think we would have a lot of people listening to this podcast <laughs> saying like, what the hell is this crap? No, of course, everyone knows, right? Even in crosswind conditions, you need to pedal quite hard to uh, keep the 45 kph. <laughs> and uh, you never can stop pedaling, right? Uh, of course, no, that's not possible. Um, you mentioned that you had collaborated with Swissside uh, on this project mm -hmm. quite a bit in terms of a lot of the aerodynamic optimization. Yes. Um, so I have quite a few questions related to that. I mean, one is, you know, Canyon is hardly unique in collaborating with this with this group. Um, why why are so many people collaborating with Swissside right now? I mean, it, it, and it's sort of thing where you know, not too long ago, really, it seemed like companies were were really quite proud to to say to say that everything was done in house. But now you have a lot more companies proudly saying that they have collaborated with Swissside on aerodynamic development. What what is this company able to offer that 
Canyon or any other suicide partners are not able to do in-house? Yeah, I mean, suicide, what they did, uh, especially for us, was the shape optimization in, uh, in CFD, computational fluid dynamics, right? Um, so they are really good at that. And in, in my point of view, they are really uh, the industry leading uh, bicycle aerodynamicists and experts. And um, so they know their business very well. They have a strong Formula One background and they are really good in CFD and also in uh, CFD. So that means computational uh, fluid dynamics simulations and wind tunnel correlation. So when, when they simulate uh, a bike model in CFD and uh, afterwards they put it to the wind tunnel, then they have a correlation of uh, one watt or even less. Yeah. So this is really, really precise and their models are really uh, yeah, predicting um, reality very, very good. Yeah. And that's, that's their expertise, yeah, definitely. And if I understand correctly, I mean, you, you, you bring in Swissside kind of more toward the tail end of the project for, for more of the, the real, real kind of like fine optimization stuff, correct? No, actually, we brought them in uh, right at the beginning of the project. Yeah. Oh, so okay. when we set up all the requirements, uh, like what, uh, I mean, weight, stiffness, geometry, aerodynamic targets, whatever, and uh, they start really very, very early in the project because what they do is they um, they optimize and define the tube shapes, for example. Yeah, And of course, this is a um, very early starting point in your project. Uh, and um, this is what they uh, do based on our set of requirements, of course. And um, yeah, so they were really, really early. They were already in the project. So how exactly does that work? Uh, so you, I, you, you communicate with Swissside, you say, you know, we want to work with you on our new air road. Do you just present to them a, a set of, you know, I guess, design project goals? And then, you know, do, do you provide them with, with any sort of parameters as far as what you, what you want this bike to be like? Or do you just say, hey, we want this bike to be faster? What do you think? No, no, not like that. I mean, we have the predecessor, right? And um, the Arrow has got a certain profile, let's say. And of course, we try to describe the main characteristics in the technical language. For example, we define surface requirements or also uh, stiffness requirements or stiffness to weight requirements even. And uh, so they have certain boundary conditions. Um, they do not start from scratch. It's, it's somehow limited, of course, the freedom here. And um, yeah, but then they uh, start and they uh, have certain iterations, uh, build different uh, 2D profiles and uh, optimize them. And in the end, they assemble a whole bike out of these 2D uh, tube shapes and uh, run simulations after simulation. And yeah, it goes like that. There's been, a, I feel like every time we post a story about a new era road bike, we get people in the comment section saying, this looks like this other era road bike. Mm -hmm. Is this why? I mean, is, is CFD why? Because basically that, you know, the computers kind of pump out similar, a similar solution when you, when you present it with the same problem, which is how do you make this bike faster? Mm -hmm. They pump out a similar solution every time. Uh, you know, every brand's got their own sort of design cues and things like that, but there's no question that there are certain design elements that have sort of that exist across almost every single era road bike. Now, I'm just curious if, if, if CFD is sort of responsible for that mm -hmm. I don't know, homogenization of, of aero bike design over the last like 10 years or so. 
it's not CFD. Actually, um, it's more the physical laws behind that, right? Also, CFD is just modeling physical laws. And I think it's mainly um, the, the physical law of aerodynamics and also, of course, the, the UCI uh, design rules. Yeah, And together, um, yeah, they are probably responsible for similar designs as for aero road bikes. Yeah. And today, of course, we see the, these Comtail profiles yeah, on almost every um, benchmark uh, aero road bike. Um, why? Yeah, because this profile is working best for this purpose, right? Um, it's based on physical laws. So I would have to imagine that, I mean, and we, we so we're going to go on, on another little bit of a tangent here. Um, and this is a question that we have posed to other companies talking about aero products, uh, aero bikes in particular. You know, Michael, you had said that, you know, this is sort of a, a general shape that we often come to because of you know, UCI technical guidelines as far as what bikes can, can look like, what, get, what they can be shaped like. How much energy, and I know, I know this is the sort of thing that Canyon likes to do internally, but how much energy has Canyon devoted to you know, the idea of what an aero road bike would look like if you weren't constrained by UCI guidelines. <laughs> um, oh, and the knowing, the knowing grin. I, I knew it. I knew it. I, I, know, I know you've been working on this already. I mean, you probably know that uh, the design rules of the UCI will change for, um, for 21, right? They will change a lot. And, and then it's probably... Yeah, it's it's possible to have uh, a ratio of eight to one for the tube shapes, for example. Yeah, um, I can just tell you that uh, when we did the iterations in CFD, right, we produced, uh, I guess, at least twenty nine different uh, CFD bike models, and uh, the fastest uh, configuration in CFD, yeah, it was. In the end, I guess it was four watts faster than the bike we have today, than the real bike, okay? Because um, what you get in the end is, of course, you you have these very deep tube shapes on every single tube, yeah? And uh, the bike then, of course, gets heavier and the stiffness to weight ratio gets worse. And um, we said, after we, yeah, we saw this, no, I guess maybe we need to go one step back. Yeah. And so we did not push the design to the uh, boundaries of, of UCI regulation, uh, but we went back um, one step and reduced, for example, the, the depth of the tubes. Yeah. Um, so I guess UCI is actually not limiting us uh, too much today. It's more our own philosophy, how a good race bike need to be, which was uh, which was driving then the design in the end. Um, just to add something here, um, Michael just talked about aerodynamics and weight and stiffness, but also um, what you need to consider is actually that riders sometimes need to ride on the bike for eight hours during a race. And then, of course, ergonomics of the bike actually is also a big, um, big factor. For example, we had like one loop where it had a very deep section, very sharp profile on the top of the handlebar. And actually, when we printed it out for the first time here on a 3D printer, and we basically gave it to people and to riders to actually feel it and touch it, it was almost impossible to hold it longer than 10 minutes. Um, so this was also an example, basically, where we reduced the, the shape in order to make the riders go longer on the bike. And this is things you also need to consider here. Um, it might be an aero bike, but we really call it a proper race bike, I would say. It's a very complete package. 
Yeah, good point from Lucas. Um, I mentioned before that we, um, yeah, we skipped actually four watts, right? A potential of four watts. We skipped it for the sake of stiffness to weigh, but also ergonomics. And for example, um, on the handlebar, when we did this modification, what Lucas just mentioned, um, for, ergon for ergonomics, we lost two watts. Yeah. But for us, th this ergonomic advantage was it worth yeah, to, um, to yeah, get another two watts of drag. Well, that's a perfect segue to what I wanted to, to discuss is, you know, again, I mean, the, the primary purpose of this bike is to go faster, but ultimately when you want to go faster, it is obviously not just about making the bike aerodynamically as fast as it could be. You have all those other considerations to, 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 to look at. What were those conversations like internally when you, when you're trying to figure out, you know, yes, we want this bike to be fast, but it also has to be pretty light. It also has to be quite stiff. Um, you know, the ride quality, that sort of thing. I mean, how do you just decide where that balance point is? Because that is seemingly something that is not something that you can just plug into a computer and have this solution pop out. I mean, there is, there is quite a lot of, I guess, subjective discussion to happen here, right? I would say it's primarily about experience. You know, we have the, we have the old Arrowhead or the current Arrowhead actually. And what we see here is there are certain aspects you still need to improve it, you can improve, right? So the starting point for us was really the, the current aero bike. And then we saw, okay, in terms of weight, there's definitely room for improvement. We want to hit the 6.8 kilograms uh, as, as much as possible, as yeah, go get as close as possible to there. And also in terms of stiffness, I mean, um, there were certain aspects on the on the current uh, aero which were saw basically stiffness improvements needed. For example, the side stiffness on, on the fork or the head tube stiffness of, of, the, of the frame. So there are, I would say it's really based on experience um, how to get to the next um, yeah to the next uh, aero bike. So how do you figure that out then? Because you can use CFD to do a lot of the aero optimization, and then I know that you know once you were pretty comfortable with where you were in the virtual development phase, you know when you moved on to building physical models for wind tunnel, I mean you could use that to to validate a lot of the the CFD calculations. But as far as things like you know ride quality and stiffness, again, you can, you can calculate quite a bit of that, I believe. But as far as actually just getting the product on the road and seeing what it feels like, I mean, at that point, I would have to think the the arrow, like the, the shape of the frame, at that point was pretty much done. No, or or did you have multiple physical rideable prototypes that you were still evaluating toward the end? I mean, in terms of stiffness and weight, of course, it's something you can also simulate. Um, you can simulate different profiles and then basically see how these profiles perform in terms of weight and, uh, and stiffness, right? So what you try to do is, of course, keep the weight down and make an ideal profile um, to get a certain stiffness number out of it. But then, of course, um, you said it before, um, it's basically also as soon as these profiles are done, you basically test multiple different um, layer versions, so different carbon fibers, different wall thicknesses. And then you basically check how the, the right difference feels in terms of stiffness and, and weight. And this is also, also what we do with a lot of internal riders here, but also with our professional riders. So we include them and try to get also their opinion on certain stiffness and, and weight aspects. Um, but at that but that point, I mean, once you start getting to the stage of building physical rideable models, I mean, is it safe to say that at that point, the shape really is pretty much done and then you still have to do, you know, whatever remaining refinement you want to do, you really do have to do it through the, the layup? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as soon as we start um, uh, cutting the molds or machining the molds, I mean, the profile is done of the frame. Um, 
really the they're like very very there must be a really a major issue uh, if we redo the mold but in most cases the molds are done and then basically all we do is try to optimize the the material side so try different uh, fibers try different fiber mixtures also try different wall thicknesses um one of the things i have to say that i was very pleasantly surprised about after riding this bike i mean looking at it you can certainly tell that um, you know, visually, it's a much more aggressive bike. The, the tube sections are deeper. I mean, it's just, it, it looks like a more aerodynamic machine, but also looking at it, you would expect it to be less comfortable than the previous generation Aeroid as well, which I thought was actually quite a nice riding aero bike. Um, but again, like I said, I was pleasantly surprised by riding the new one. It really doesn't feel any different ride quality wise, despite the fact that it looks like it'd be pretty punishing. So what what exactly <laughs> did you do to, to make it so that it's actually pretty nice to ride for a long period of time? Yeah, as you said, I think um, as soon as you start increasing the profile depth, and I mean, we talk about here maybe double the size for the seat post compared to the previous Aeroad, um, at the same time also the stiffness um, dramatically increases and therefore the, the comfort is completely gone. So what we try to do here is to get a uh, concept here for the stiffness of the, of the seat post, which actually keeps the same comfort like we have it on the, on the current bike. And what we did here is um, there are basically two things. The first one was to move the clamping. So right now the clamp part sits uh, like 100 millimeters um, away from the top of the head tube, and therefore you uh, increase the bending um, on the seat post. So basically you have a longer distance from the clamping to the saddle, and by doing this, you also increase the um, flexibility on the seat post. So this was the first thing we did. There's also something known um, from the Ultimate, what we do right now. Also for the Ultimate, we have a similar principle. The clamping is no longer on the top tube. It's really um, yeah, uh, like deep, deeper down. The second thing we did is um, if you pull out the, the seat post, you will see there's basically two sections in there. So we have a forward section and then we have a second profile in the back. And basically what they do is we try to separate um, the load so for the first one, of the forward one, we try to really make it um, quite stiff and get all the load through there. And the second part, the, um, the, the part in the back of the seat post, is really there just to cover um, and get this aerodynamic benefit there, right? So that also the second part in the back is made from um, glass fiber materials and also some kind of rubber material in there to get more um, yeah, flexibility and to get more comfort in the seat post. So this is going to be very... I guess, careful wording. I'm sure that internally you would describe this differently for UCI rules, but I guess for, for purposes of explanation for people who don't have the benefit of seeing this thing, I mean, if you pull the seat post out, it, it almost kind of looks like, you know, kind of like a, like a butcher's meat cleaver sort of thing in terms of what it's shaped like. You have sort of like a more <laughs> normal, shallower profile seat post at the bottom, but then the rest of it has this deeper section. But internally, it's almost like you have that smaller uh that lower profile cross section of seat post going all the way up but then you have sort of like this thinner more flexible i guess i'm going to call it a fairing on the back of it that is that that provides a ride comfort is that correct um there's also a second reason um we only have the small profile in the in the in the, in the top section or in, in, in the lower section actually because the clamping sits in this area right so if you would um elongate the, the back section also to the, to the very end um we would have no space for the clamping anymore so there's also a certain reason why we need this space or this clearance there for the clamping, but I definitely would not call it a fairing because it's not like it's like a stick-on part or something like this or a cover. It's really like integrated in the seat post. So I think we can really say it's like one piece actually. So it's not something we need to yeah, worry about UCI rules. Um, you've also gone up a size 
uh, greater than typical for the rear tire, right? So, I mean, I noticed you're running a, a staggered setup on, on this bike, not even just in terms of the tires, but the wheels also, right? You're running a, a narrower wheel and tire up front and a wider wheel and tire at back, right? Yeah. So this is something we also had on the, on the previous Aeroad. So we're choosing a 23 millimeter, I think, in the past and a 25 in the back. And we also compensate this already when we set up the geometry of the bike. So what we do is with the axle height basically is different from the from the front and the rear, and that's also what we do, did now for the new Aeroad. We set it up like for a 25 millimeter uh, tire in the front, and 28 millimeter in the back, and clearly I mean you can see that the tires will go they or they already go bigger. You know, nobody uh, rides a 23 tire in the back anymore, so we can see there's a clear yeah goal to to go also for bigger tire tire in the rear. And also, if you look for like really hard races like Paris-Roubaix or the, the Flandern um, race, you can see pros already go there like for 32 or 33 millimeter tires because yeah, there's a clear benefit there. So that's also what we try to achieve with the new Aeroad. Even if the pros choose a really, really big tire, that's something we need to have and we need to have clearance for this. Right. And, and after mentioning that with a 33 millimeter tire, clearly there are going to be more than one person out there grabbing a new aeroad and throwing some cyclocross tires on there and trying to go race on the weekend. Well, we wouldn't recommend that actually. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting to see this, to, maybe uh, to add something, but um, I think it's interesting to uh, to see this trend, right, which was actually enabled uh, by the disc brake. Huh? Because before when we had the caliper brakes, a 28 millimeter uh, tire on a 20C rim, almost impossible right and now we uh, we have we have this combination of 28 and 25 at the front so um, yeah thanks to disc brakes uh, we can do that now oh the disc brake versus rim brake thing is a very sensitive topic among our listeners we'll get to that in a little bit though um what about weight because you know just just looking at uh the the bike i mean it's again deeper profiles it's more surface area you know generally speaking when you have more surface area you have more material if you have more material you have more weight um this bike however is lighter than the previous one lucas i mean you had said that you know one of your main goals was to make this bike lighter than the previous generation air road so that it was easier to hit that 6.8 kilo mark um you know so despite the fact that you have more surface area on this bike i mean how do you make the bike lighter i mean surface area is not everything if you talk about weight optimization. We discussed before the, the tube shapes and the tube shapes are very um, significant or they're very essential for uh, weight optimization. So what you, what you could see in the past is basically that aero road bikes had like this very um, shallow profiles, very deep profiles and they're basically, they're very bad I would say for stiffness. And if you want to reach a certain stiffness target actually you need to add a lot of material there to get um, to, the, to the stiffness you need. And what we did here is um, it basically if you look at the down tube, for example, all the down tube got, got much bigger, I would say, not only in the profile depth, but also, also in width. It got bigger than the current or the previous aeroad. And that helped us a lot actually to get um, the weight down because the profile was itself was already stiffer, you know. You don't need to compensate with lots of, lots of material if you have a really good profile already. Um, and this is one of the, of the main reasons why we um, basically uh, were able to bring the weight down. And the second, of course, was that we also optimized um, for the material. So we really, for the CFR version, we have like a really the best fibers we can get with similar fibers or fiber split that we, what we did already before on the Ultimate. And um, yeah, that's how we brought the weight down. And are you able to do that sort of thing without sacrificing durability? Like what about like impact toughness and that sort of thing? I mean, is there, do you test for that? Is there any sort of change between this generation and the previous generation for people who are worried about their bikes lasting you know, more than a season? 
for sure, I mean, the testing is not different. The testing for our CFR bikes and our um, yeah different levels of bikes, they're all the same, right? We don't sacrifice any tests um, uh, here. But for example, we do a lot of impact testing on the frames. We have different um, impact tests and also different impact levels. So what it means is basically um, you have like level one, um, which has a certain height, and then you increase the height, you go to level two and level three. So we add up all these levels. Um, but for sure, the CFR has no, you know, we don't cut away any levels for this one. So it has the same durability, we simulate the same um, life cycle basically for the same frame. Right, so it's not a, it's not like a level minus one or something. <laughs> no, 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 that's not. Um, I, I want to move on to, to the geometry of this bike a little bit because there's one thing I picked up on that I, that I was a little bit surprised about. I mean, again, this is sort of your, your premier race bike. Um, you say that ideally it's sort of your premier all-around race bike that really, you know, it should be the first machine that people choose in the Canyon lineup if they just want to go fast, especially in a racing situation. Um, but you, you've kind of relaxed the geometry, at least more, more specifically the, the rider fit aspect of this a little bit with a, you know, it, it I guess just looking purely at the numbers, the, the the stack and reach have been modified a bit so that it's just not quite as aggressive as before. I mean, does that indicate sort of a, a slightly different, I guess, target market for, for this bike in terms of the general general consumer, or is this something that pro riders actually requested? Um, so basically what we did is we looked at our yeah, customers, how they ride the bikes at the moment, and what we could see um, many times is that most of the customers actually don't remove the spaces, right? They still have the spaces underneath the cockpit, which indicates clearly, okay, um, nobody really writes the, the error in the lowest position you could um, could in the, in the past. So what we did here is we tried to, on the error, try to get a similar um, similar uh, geometry, a similar position like we did for the Ultimate, because the Ultimate seems to fit uh, yeah, a lot of customers much better. Um, and that's why what, what we tried to do here. Of course, for our pro riders, we still um, need to offer a different solution. I would say we still offer. Uh, or at, the, at the moment, we um, are working with our pro riders actually to get the same con or the same geometry like we had before. So what we do is here we work on a, sec a second cockpit, which has a different um, stem angle then, and therefore we can also get the, the same um, geometry like we had before. But for the main group, the customers, I think the, the new geometry will fit a lot better. So the this this modified cockpit or i guess this this alternative cockpit uh stem angle that you're offering to pro riders that need a more aggressive position is that something that you're potentially going to offer to regular consumers also for for sort of the very small percentage of people who actually want or need that um i think to be honest we're not in this in that stage to decide this yet because we just offered prototypes to our pro riders we need to get their feedback of course and see um, how they like it and then i think later we'll decide if it makes sense actually to offer it also to our customers at the moment, we don't um, we don't have this uh, as, a, as an aftermarket article because we don't have it on stock yet. Okay, fair enough. Um, speaking of this cockpit, though, that is one of the things that is, I, I would say, really striking and intriguing about this bike is, you know, sort of the way that you've handled this whole thing up front. Now, one of the common complaints among consumers, certainly among myself as well, with <clears throat> with fully integrated front ends, um, you know, you have a new cockpit on this bike. I'm not going to call it a one-piece cockpit because it's not, but you have a new cockpit on this bike where everything is again internally routed, you know, runs through runs through the handlebar and runs through the stem down into into the frame. So all the cabling up front is fully hidden. It makes for a really neat look, but it also, you know, that sort of setup can also be a really really big pain in terms of making adjustments. 
Um, I mean, the, the height adjustment on this bike is, it's not all that dissimilar from what you have on other fully integrated aero bikes. You know, you have the split headset spacers and that sort of thing. So it's not too hard to move the thing up and down. But in this case, you have a really clever solution for modifying the handlebar width that doesn't involve taking everything apart. So can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, as you mentioned before, integrated cables basically make, make it very hard for people to do any adjustment or to travel with the bike. And what we did here is we have a really fully integrated solution. So this means actually our cables really go through the cockpit and then directly into the frame. There are no separate covers to cover anything, which you can basically um, yeah, deassemble and then get the cables out. Our cables are really fully integrated. And as soon as, as you do something like this, you need to offer also the customer a solution how you can travel with the bike for sure. Also our business model is that we send um, bikes directly to the customer. So then the customers needs to um, yeah, just finish the, the bike and make very, very small um, assembly steps actually to get, um, get on the bike. So what we did here is um, we basically thought about how can we yeah, make such a solution that the customer takes the bike out of the box and then maybe assembles a couple of screws and that's basically it. that's everything he needs to do. And that's where we came up with this solution here, where we basically split the cockpit in three sections. So we have the main center bar, and then you have the left and the right drop bar. And these three pieces are basically connected um, with, with two screws each. And that's basically everything the customer needs to do to assemble the bike. So it takes the bike out of the box, um, removes some, some coverage of the drop bars, um, yeah, put them in the main bar, and a screw, a screw in two screws, and that's basically it. Everything is done. Um, so this was the first step when we thought about, okay, how can we make it easier for the customer to, to um, yeah, travel with the bike or assemble the bike. And at the same time, we also thought, okay, if I mean, we have this joint already there, right? We split the parts already there. Why don't we go a step further and allow actually the customer also at the same time to make adjustments in this area? And that's where we came um, up with the idea to uh, make the, the drop bars a little bit movable uh, in both directions and therefore give the customer the possibility to adjust the width of the handlebar. So what we ended up with is a three-piece solution um, for smaller riders. They can go from 370 millimeter up to 410 millimeters. For bigger riders, they can go up from uh, 390 to all uh, all the way up to 430 millimeters. So you basically, I mean, in terms of adjustment, that's everything you need. Every rider can yeah, set up the, the width as they wish. And one of, of our ideas or one example could also be, for example, um, doing to the fronts, one rider choose on a flat stage. It's not that technical, maybe he wants to go really shallow. He maybe goes up to a 390 millimeters um, cockpit adjustment. And then the next day and uh, the mechanic prepares um, uh, the cockpit, the same cockpit, um, maybe for 410 because it's more technical. There are more dis um, descents in there. So that's, that could be one scenario. And I guess just to, to clarify for listeners, I and mean, what we're talking about here is we have a center sort of T-shaped section of the cockpit where it's the integrated center portion of the handlebar and the stem. That's all one piece multi-carbon fiber. And then the outer parts of the handlebar on either side are kind of, you have sort of like this, this telescoping sliding section where you can, you can adjust the width of the drop of the drop section in and out, or you can just remove them completely. And then what you have when you remove them completely is that center section is essentially the width of a pretty standard bike box. So in terms of traveling, then you don't have to take the whole front end apart. You don't have to take the stem off. Um, you know, if you're one of those people who puts in a lot of time and effort to make sure their stem is perfectly straight, like, like I do, um, you don't have to mess with that or worry about messing up that adjustment when you put it, when you put your bike into a box for traveling. So, uh, I mean, that part's super, super neat. I mean, I, like, I, I have a, 
I've a, a, quite a lot of honest admiration for how you've come up with this thing because it just does seem to solve a lot of problems. I mean, it, it, you do still have to take everything apart, however, if you want to change the stem length, however, right? Because on the on the test bike that I have, I've got a, it comes stock with a 90 millimeter stem. Um, I mean, I personally would prefer something more like a you know 100 or 110, and I'm, I I have to admit I'm very reluctant to request a longer stem because I know what would be required to change that. But that, that is still something that requires quite a lot of work, correct? Yeah, so definitely if you want to, to change the sim length, you basically need to deassemble all the, the cable routing and then uh, take the cockpit off and put a new cockpit on. So that's also something we don't um, want to do or let our customers do basically because there's a lot of work involved and something maybe also can go wrong if you do it and not correctly. So this is something we just offer by, by ourselves or um, maybe in the future also by, by authorized uh, bike shops. But definitely that's something we not recommend customers to do by themselves because the stem length is the adjustment is quite uh yeah it's complicated i would say so currently on you know when you go to canyon.com and you order a bike i mean you don't you don't have the ability to specify a custom stem length through the ordering process but is that something that you can is that something that that someone can request somehow in the ordering process because again i mean it, it's while it's nice that you can adjust the width very easily at home without making any big adjustments. The stem length, again, like we said, is is quite a lot more involved. But if you need to make that adjustment, I mean, it's if it's something that you don't necessarily want customers to do, I mean, you kind of have to be able to offer a custom stem length, right? Absolutely. Yes. At the moment, we don't offer it on a website directly. But if you write us a message or basically write a note in the in the ordering process, that's something we can then uh, later process for you. So, for example, if you write, okay, I order size medium, I know. I already know I need to go one size bigger maybe for the stem length and basically just type it in there and we will come back to you. Okay, so either way, I mean, you still at least, I mean, it, I think it's really good that you are that you offer that even though it's not quite visible, but I mean, at least there is a way for customers to, to get that so they don't have to take the whole thing apart later. Absolutely, um, but of course, if pref it's preferred for us, um, if you know it already when you order the bike, you can directly um, yeah, change it for you. It's, I think it's, of course, it's more complicated if you have the bike already and then decide maybe you want to change it for your own. Like me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so speaking of speaking of changing this cockpit, uh, the, the stem light, uh, you know, looking at how this thing goes together, I mean, you, you've come up with a quite a different way of, of assembling this whole thing. I mean, typically what, what most companies have been doing now to conceal all the cables you know, usually what they've been doing is they still use a one and one eighth inch diameter steer tube up top like they conventionally would, but a lot of them have been using, you know, flattened sections of the steer tube or you know, they make it D-shaped, something like that, um, just to make room for the cabling to run in through uh, inside the, the upper headset bearing before it runs into the frame. You don't do that with this bike though. I mean, the, 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 you know, one of the characteristics of Canyon road bikes has always been this, you know, this one and one quarter inch or one one four. Uh, diameter steer tube and, and it sounds like you've somehow figured out a way to retain that and still keep it round, right? Yeah, so what we do is basically we have a like a shaft and shaft principle. So we keep the 114 diameter for the um, stem shaft. So we basically have a, a shaft um, which is bonded already fixed to the stem. And then we have also the fork shaft which is now 118. And what we do here is we have two tubes. They basically slide on, on each other. And this is also how we adjust the height of the cockpit. So what you need to do is you need to do unscrew one screw basically untighten the, the clamping part and then you're able to move the, the two parts up and down. So you just slide them on the on the shaft basically and there's no need actually to cut the, the, to cut the fork or something like this anymore. Um, and 
by doing this, we also had the opportunity to basically integrate the cables in there. So what most of other brands basically do is they have a certain um, shaft diameter on the, on the fork, and then they have a compression wing. This is the part which um, compresses the bearing and therefore get rid of the bearing plane. And normally this compression wing is quite big, right? There's a there's like a, at least 10 millimeter um, um, space in the compression wing where the, the routed cables through. And this leads then to a very, very big bearing seat on the frame. You need to have a very, very big bearing seat uh, to compensate this, um, this compression ring. Um, and a big bearing seat also means a big head tube. And that's what we don't want to have on the aero bike, of course. I mean, especially the, the forward section of the bike is very crucial for aerodynamics. The, the head tube section is very crucial for aerodynamics. And as soon as you go up for a very big profile there, um, the aero benefit is almost gone, I would say. So what we did here is really we, we route the cables inside the, the shaft in order to make sure that the head tube can stay very, very shallow. So essentially, I guess what you have here is sort of like a like a conventional seat post and seat tube, like a, a conventional slotted seat tube and seat post on a regular round tube frame, but sort of flipped upside down then, right? Uh, it's something similar. Yeah. It's also something what we had like maybe 20 or 30 years ago. There was like on steel frames, there was a similar principle basically where you had this, this 90 degree um, stem, which was also one piece. And then you just, you know, untighten this big screw in the center and just move it up and down. But I think our, our principle is the same here, but it's for sure it's more detailed, I would say, more complex. <laughs> yeah, just to, to make it very clear, Canyon has not reverted back to conventional coil stems with wedge with wedge type binders in this new aeroid. So that is not what we're talking about here. Nah, I mean, not really, no. I mean, it, I guess sort of conceptually, it's somewhat similar, but certainly nowhere near as, you know, I guess, clunky or heavy or... Or unreliable. Uh, yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> uh, how much height adjustment are we talking about here? I mean, so it, it is easy to move the cockpit height up and down, yeah. uh, but how much, what's the range of adjustment? At the moment, we're talking about 15 millimeters of adjustment. So 15, one five. Exactly, yeah. Okay. I mean, is, is, would it have been difficult to incorporate more? I mean, do you think that will be enough? Um, we think it's it's enough for the moment, yeah. But also considering there might be a second cockpit maybe involved here. Because with a second cockpit and a different stem angle, you basically double up the the, yeah, the, how say, the, the, the adjustment range of the, of the cockpit. You know, speaking of the adjustment for the pros and that sort of thing, uh, you know, one of the things that I previously really liked on the, the, the previous generation air road was, I mean, I prefer a traditional bend handlebar with a, a pretty deep drop and long reach. And I noticed that you've gone to kind of a more, I guess, a, I guess more, uh, I guess more average setup for, for this bike. It's a little bit shallower reach, a little bit shorter drop. Um, and the bend is not quite as, as traditional, just round, deep, uh, deep drop. Um, is it possible? I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure that that's the sort of thing where you've made that change because, you know, not most, you know, most people don't like a deep traditional bend drop handlebar like I do. Um, but is it the sort of thing, I mean, since you have a three-piece cockpit now, I mean, it, is there any chance in the future that you might offer different variations of this that people can choose from? Um, generally speaking, there might be an option, yeah. But I mean, the, the reason why we're choosing such a um, modern dropper or maybe more ergonomic dropper is because in the first place, when we launched the first aerobike with the integrated cockpit, we had like with this traditional round bar you were talking about, right? And then a lot of riders actually didn't prefer this um, this shape, I would say. A lot of, a lot of riders um, asked for a different uh, section, which has basically just this modern ergonomic shape with this flat section where you can put your hand easier in there. And then that's why it's basically, um, we also decided for the new uh, handlebar, we go in this direction. 
Also for our ultimate range, for example, the CP10, also different cockpit, we also have this modern shape already in there because more and more pro riders also prefer the new section. But of course, I mean, if there's a, there's a big demand, um, it's, I think it's very easy to, to swap um, the drop bars to a different shape. So like if I were to send a whole bunch of emails from different email addresses and just make it look like a whole lot of different people are asking for this, that I might have a chance of getting a deep drop bend on this handlebar? Absolutely. If you want to send 5,000 emails, we can do that, yeah. Oh man! All right, I'm gonna have to. If anyone's listening to this, if you're if you're good at setting up bot email accounts, I, I might need a hand here. But all of these will be checked, of course. So we'll be call uh, each number in there. <laughs> damn it! Damn it! All right. Well, my my hopes may be dashed on that one. Uh, one thing that people are still really, like I said, our, our audience is quite sensitive to the subject. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but there is no rim brake version of the new Air Road, correct? No, absolutely not. We don't have any rim brake versions here anymore. We just have disc brake versions. Now, now I understand that a lot of the design development that goes on around a bike like this does obviously involve the UCI as far as making sure the frame is UCI legal, the bike can be built up you know, to a 6.8 kilogram weight target, that sort of thing. Most people are not racing in UCI events, however, and there are still an awful lot of people who really enjoy the, the feel and sensation of a very, very light bike. And you know, even if you can make a disc brake frame just as light or lighter than a rim brake frame, the complete bike still on average is you know, maybe like half a kilo heavier for a disc brake bike versus a rim brake bike. So considering that most people are not really concerned at all about UCI regulations, how much, I mean, how, how difficult would it have been to make a rim brake version of this? And I guess more importantly, is there even enough demand at all from consumers to have something like that anymore? I mean, to be fair, um, for the aero bike, basically our tire was a 6.8 kilograms, right? And if you really look for a super lightweight bike, I mean, even with a rim brake bike, you wouldn't go much uh, lighter than this. Maybe you go to, I don't know, 6.6 .6 or 6.7 kilograms. So if you really look for a super lightweight bike, uh, I would say the aero bike in general is probably not the right bike for you. I mean, we offer an ultimate bike, which is around 6 kilograms. So really, if you want to look, or if you're looking for a light bike, um, maybe the ultimate might be more, uh, su or suit you better. Um, but I think in general, there's, uh, we don't see such a big demand for rim brake bike, I would say. In general, I think customers are really, they see the benefits from disc brake bikes. I mean, we, we mentioned um, we mentioned rim uh, and, uh, and uh, tire width before. For example, the 30 millimeter tire in the back, you, you could not do it on a rim brake bike. So there are definitely there are more um, benefits uh, from disc brake bike, not just the disc brake performance, of course. Oh, I can hear, I can hear Tom Altal. I can hear our reader Tom Anhalt screaming right now because he does have a, a 30 millimeter tired bike with rim brakes and, and I, I know he is shaking his fist at his computer right now saying it can be done, it can be done. Yeah. Yes, we know Tom, we know. <laughs> no, I, um, I also think that uh, the demand is not really there anymore and if you bring a new bike and an expensive bike then I think it's almost impossible to bring it with rim brakes, right? It's not uh, modern anymore. It's not a, a cutting-edge technology bike anymore with rim brakes. So, yeah, I think in the future we are going to see almost only a new uh, uh, disc brake road bikes. Yeah. 
Um, I kind of want to finish all this off by kind of looking into looking into the future a little bit and you know maybe getting a peer in, inside Canyon's crystal ball a bit. Um, you know, Lucas, you had mentioned, or actually, I can't remember if it was Lucas or Michael. One of you mentioned that, um, and we had heard this as well, that the, the UCI regulations for for tube cross section is about to change. You know, going from a three to one limit to you know potentially as much as an eight to one. So with that change happening, what are aero bikes going to look like in the very near future? Yeah, I mean, um, maybe a bit more different than they do today, right? So uh, I think there will be, of course, some brands uh, which are trying to use the new freedom, the new design freedom, and uh, build a road bike which almost looks like a time trial bike, but only with a, a road handlebar. Um, I think also from the experience now with the new era, uh, where we where we could have gone further, right? But we actually didn't because uh, for overall performance. So I think um, at least for us, it probably uh, won't change too much, as I said before. But I think some brands they will, uh, yeah, they will see the opportunity. To differ a bit more and to uh, build a super aero road bike, which of course then weights probably eight point five kilograms. I don't know, but yeah, I could imagine. And then I would have to think as well. I mean, if you were to de- design even further uh, to optimize for aerodynamics to take take advantage of that new rule, I mean, it, it, in spite of the fact that you've been able to to still make this bike pretty comfortable, I mean, it would be. I would imagine much harder to do if the tube sections were even quite a lot deeper than they are now, right? Yes, of course. I mean, um, you will make compromises for comfort. You will make compromises, especially for stiffness to weight. And yeah, uh, you can build such a bike. I mean, we we know this from the the time trial bikes very well. But uh, I think for a competition road bike, um, I don't. I have doubts regarding overall performance, and I also have doubts that pro riders are going to choose such a bike. For example, um, Alejandro Valverde, he was riding the Ultimate a lot during the uh, the last years, and now he switched. Uh, he switched to the new Arrow, and um, so there are enough riders, pro riders out there, preferring actually a more like Ultimate type of bike, right? And um, so it's still a long way uh, until they uh, choose such a super aero road bike. Yeah. So maybe the kind of thing that we just see, like you know, in sprint trains and things like that. Maybe a very specific, very yes. specific bike. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is also our point of view. If you want to be best in class, you need to have different kind of bikes, of course, right? So maybe there will be a niche or something for for such bikes. Um, but if you want to have a complete race bike, which is good for almost every stage at a Tour de France, for example, then I think it's not the right way to go. I mean, because as we mentioned before, and we, you know, a lot of companies already have a pretty hard time convincing their pro riders to choose the aero road bikes that are already at their disposal now that are, you know, currently, you know, nearly as light and you know nearly as comfortable and that sort of thing as their you know their their lighter weight bikes. So I'd imagine if you were able to produce a, a road bike that was even more aerodynamic, but also even heavier and potentially with a with a less comfortable ride quality, then at that point it'd be even harder to potentially convince yes. pro riders to switch to that bike. Yeah, right? I agree. Yeah. Um, going in the other direction, this is going to be my last question for you before we wrap up here. 
What happens to all of this stuff if the UCI weight limit goes down? I mean, there's been talk year after year after year about the weight limit decreasing to, you know, 6.5, 6.4, or something like that. I mean, with all of this development optimization around hitting that target and basically packing as much technology as you can into 6.8 kilograms, what happens if it goes down to 6.5 or something? I mean, do we see things moving in a different direction? I mean, coming back to this rim break thing, I mean, would we look? Would, would we see companies potentially looking to that again as a ways to to, to introduce a lightweight race bike? I mean, what what happens at that point? I mean, we are actually well prepared for, for such a scenario, right? Because we have the Ultimate CFR, which is really a super light bike. I don't know, maybe then some providers uh, are going to prefer this kind of bike um, over the Arrow. Um, but in general, I mean, today everyone is riding deep rims uh, and uh, the provider, of course, they know that deep deep rim wheels are heavier than uh, flat rims, right? But nevertheless, they, they use them because they know about the advantages. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting question and uh, I don't know exactly, of course, what, what will happen, but um, yeah. I don't know, maybe then everyone is going <laughs> for a super light uh, bike, uh, which is not error at all. And then afterwards they see that it's it, it won't make you more successful. And then they go back here, yeah, for example. Also, maybe this happens as well. So uh, it could be the return of Drillium and then Kaylee and I will have to start going back to our weight meaning forum days. <laughs> Heck yeah, basically. I love that. Hope that maybe the riders will see it as a potential actually to switch between bikes, for example, during the front, uh, during the Tour de France. So for mountain stages, maybe to go for the ultimate, which is really super on the weight limit, and then for flat and hilly stages to go for the for the aeroad, because we have both bikes basically for both scenarios. So I think maybe it goes more in this direction probably in the future. Or or think of, how how about this concept? You can you can build on this one now. You can build a super light ultimate type ultimate CFR type bike. With a special water bottle that's shaped like an arrow fairing that you know holds all this weight, and then when you need to hit the mountains, you can just pull it off and have your ultra ultralight bike, right? Just toss it off into the weeds. Absolutely, yeah. Right. Maybe we just need to talk to the UCI before, but in general, I think, yeah. <laughs> I feel like the UCI yeah. might have some words about that. They, they might, they might. It, it also was a pretty terrible idea. But I, I like that. You know, I like, I like the thought of it. I like the idea of like you know some sort of you know rolling transformer type bike that you can sort of just instantly convert without having to hop off and you know. Um, anyway, this is why I don't develop bikes. <laughs> okay, so to sum things up, I guess, unless I'm missing something here, this new Air Road is it's a faster bike, it's lighter than it was before, um, you know, it's stiffer, it's equally comfy, it's more convenient, uh, and, you know, it seems like unless something has changed in the business model, it's still a really good value that Canyon has always been known to offer. So, I mean, is there anything that we're missing here before we wrap things up? I don't think I so. I mean, did we just ask them to give us the bad things about their bike that we didn't notice yet? <laughs> yes, yes. Tell us all the bad things that we haven't noticed yet. There's actually nothing. That seems or like more, a loaded or question. More importantly, or or more, more, more importantly, tell, can you can you maybe zoom in on, on the boards behind you with all the post-it notes that are on there about all the development of future bikes? Can you, can you zoom in a little bit on there? Because I can't quite make out the text. No, this is just boring marketing stuff here. Nothing to do with development. No, that's, that's almost even better. <laughs> That's no cool engineering post-it notes, just marketing post-it notes. Alas. Disappointing. 
Oh, well. Well, thank you both, Michael and Lucas, for joining us today. Uh, we, we always love doing these deep dives on a new bike, particularly with the actual engineers who developed it. Uh, no offense to marketing folks. Uh, there is a marketing person on this call as well. <laughs> but the, en the engineers are generally more interesting to talk to when we're talking about developing bicycles. So with that, I do think it is time to wrap up for today. Thanks to Canyon for making both of you available. And for more details, before we wrap up, make sure you head over to the website where we have the full written article on this bike, including our first impressions of the ride. So make sure you go check that out. Yeah, and if you've got additional questions, something that you wish we would have asked Michael and Lucas, chuck it in the comments. We'll send them an email. Maybe we'll get answers for you. That'd be great. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back next week. Cool. Bye. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye.